Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, Britt. Yeah, so if you don't know me, my name is Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're so glad that you've joined us here, either uh, in, in the building or if you might be watching online. Thank, thank you. It's such an honor to be a part of anybody's spiritual journey, whether you, you know, Sunridge is your home for a long time or, uh, you know, you're brand new to church and still trying to figure religion out and what it means to be a Christian. So uh, I want to start here just by saying this is a super difficult passage, right? And uh, I don't know if you were paying attention uh, there's a lot in there. So uh, I want to start by saying that Christian faith is incompatible with slavery or any kind of racial oppression, any kind. And human beings, uh, the Bible tells us, are deceitful and desperately wicked, our hearts are. And so we can find any way to maintain power over people or individuals. It's just in our nature. Um, but the Bible teaches that all human beings are made in the image of God. And so that gives us incredible and equal value. And Christian thought does not enable ownership of a human being in any form or fashion, nor deny fair opportunity. So we have to start there, right? Because this passage is going to be challenging to us, not just to understand it, but to bring it forward to our day and time. Before we jump into this part of Peter's first letter, remember that the Bible is not an American book written last week for those of us who live in the Temecula Valley, right? This is an ancient uh, book. It is, it's foreign culture. And so sometimes making a one-to-one -one leap from what the Bible says to how we believe or live today can be difficult. And, of course, Danny, last week, shout out to Danny. did such a great job with, yeah. So, um, you know, he uh, did such a great job talking about what it means to submit to government authority. But, of course, we learned that, uh, you know, Peter says to submit to the emperor. And we don't have an emperor. So save your comments. Okay. Um, <laughs> We live in a democracy, right? Kind of, most of the time. So um, we can't read the Bible as this uh, static rule book. And when we try to do that, when we come to passages like this, um, we're going to run into all kinds of problems. Uh, in fact, I'm really looking forward. In November, we're going to do a series on the Bible called Breakthrough. That's all I'm going to tell you about that, but that's going to be super fun to do. We're going to 
some of our other folks are going to teach too in that, and so you're going to love you're going to love that series. But when we read a letter, you know the the Bible, your New Testament has like four Gospels. These are biographies of Jesus, and then there's Acts, which is kind of like the history of the church, and then there are these letters, and they are written to regions and people in a time and location, and they're they're trying they're trying to like help people live out the teachings of Jesus in their unique culture, in their unique time and framework, and all the problems and questions that they would have. Remember, like, when the church started, they didn't have a Bible. That Oh, I just, like, that was like, you shouldn't have even heard that. We're waiting till the November series to tell you that, in case you haven't figured that out. But they didn't have a Bible like we have it. And so all they had was the testimony at first of Jesus. And some of them had seen him and encountered him. Others had not. But they had the gospel that there was a new way to live. And it was validated by this man named Jesus Nazareth who uh, rose from the dead. He conquered death. And that's, that's all they have. So when these letters are written to these churches, they're like writing to them and saying, this is how you live out the teachings of Jesus in your space and time. It's like to say, hey guys, um, you guys over there with questions about how you should live, how, how the gospel affects the way you live out your life in your time and space, here's a letter to help you do that. And so what we've seen in this letter that Peter writes his first letter that Christians are a minority. They're a cognitive minority. They're on the fringe. Society isn't a Christian society in any way. And so they're living counterculturally. And, and we've said that living counterculturally is to like live according to like different values or morals that your day and time is living. And we kind of like frame it all this way, like in a big title. It's like, what does it mean to to be Christian in a culture that isn't. So what happens when your Christian belief is in conflict with the culture, the values, and the morals in the day and time that you live in? Because following Jesus can definitely put you at odds with culture, correct? Yes, so there's one, one person still listening. Thank you. But here's the kicker, right? Oftentimes, we can be put at odds with ourselves as we try to follow Jesus. So let's not forget that we live in this culture. We were raised in this culture. And not every value, not every accepted belief that's been passed down to us, even, even sometimes in a Christian culture, is not necessarily Christian and so, yeah, we can find ourselves at odds with the world that we live in, but also we can find ourselves, as we attempt to follow Jesus with all of our hearts, uh, that we come in conflict with our own values and our own worldview. I have found that sometimes Jesus puts me in direct conflict with something that I, that I thought I believed. Have you found that to be true? Sometimes following Jesus requires that I dismantle 
a social construct or a value system that I, that I thought was the right thing. But as I lay it side by side with the teachings of Jesus, I find that I'm, I'm in conflict with what he said. And if you're not experiencing that, at least on occasion, then you're really not listening to Jesus. Because if you follow him, sometimes you'll have an aha moment. And you're like, oh, I didn't really think about that. And nowhere is that more explicit, I think, than in particular this section of Peter's letter. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we hit a hinge point. You know, the letters are typically begin with the why, and then they turn to the how, the practical side. And in verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2, remember, Peter said this, live such good lives among the pagans that though, accuse, though, though, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So Peter is saying we have a call to live a good life among people, not isolated, but among people who think and believe differently than us so that they can see God. They can see the real God and in the end glorify him. In other words, the way you live your life can change people's minds about God. The rub comes in how Peter describes what this good life looks like. And there's a common thread for this whole section. He, talks, he's, he rolls out, here's the good life. This is an idea. And now these are kind of like bullet points under what the good life means. And it, it, there's just a common thread. So last week, Danny read from 1 Peter 2.13. And you just, just look for the common things here. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And then this week, our section of Scripture begins with a similar idea. Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. So as you think about those two verses... What's the common thread? What's the common word? Submit. Are we all ready for this? Someone is. Are you experiencing maybe a little dissonance, maybe a little discomfort in like just even thinking about this idea? Why don't you turn to a person that you don't know right now, which is not me. Remember, this is part of the drill. Turn to somebody you do not know. Do that now. And I want you to say, this is making me uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you don't need to give a lot of detail on that. You just needed to say that sentence, okay? Thank you for playing along, folks. But it's okay, right? It's going to be okay. Because you have to think about this. Is it, is it wrong to assume that um, Jesus or the Bible will never offend us? Can, is it possible that sometimes the Bible or the sayings of Jesus will even outrage us? It is possible. Because even our ideas about what it means to live counterculturally uh, have been influenced by our culture. Which is why letters like this in the scripture are so important to get us kind of like back on the bubble. 
Now, there's some things that we need to understand about this text in particular in order for us to really grasp what is being said. And, I'm, we're, we're, and it's going to set up uh, kind of like the four points of my message today. Number one, we need to talk about slavery in the first century. We need to understand what that was like. And then number two, we need to talk about um, who Peter is talking to and uh, what it is specifically he's asking them to do, that he's inviting them into. And then thirdly, we'll talk about what is the vision behind all that. So what's the big idea, the why behind what he's saying? And then lastly, we want to look at the connection between the teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, and his example. Okay? So number one, let's talk about slavery in the first century. And this starts kind of like, if you, if you follow along in your notes, you can fill this in. One-third of the population at this time are slaves. So in the Roman Empire, you're either a slave or free. It was as simple as that. And that was the socioeconomic structure uh, of that day. It was just based on these two classes. And you were distinguished uh, in your social class by those two categories. And, of course, in the past, we've talked about, like, what the early church was like. This created all kinds of social and economic tensions in the church. But that, that wasn't the only uh, thing that was going on. It was that's different. Like, how you became a slave in the first century is different than today. Because slavery was, wasn't based on race or ethnicity. And so, you know, oftentimes, like I want to acknowledge something, when we read the Bible, you experience it in a different way based on your experience or where, who you are. And for instance, like if you're a woman, uh, when we talk about Mary or Esther or Ruth, it's like, I don't know, it's more visceral to you, right? And uh, when you hear the word slavery, if you are African-American, it's going to affect you differently than someone who's just grown up as a kind of like a descendant of white European, uh, you know, culture. It just hits us differently. We need to acknowledge that. In the, in the American experience, when we hear the word slavery, um, all blacks and only blacks were slaves. Right? But in the first century, anyone could become a slave. In the first century, there were all kinds of slaveries. You could be born into it. So if you were a child born to a woman who was a slave at the time of your birth, you belonged to her owner, uh, regardless of who the father was. Uh, you could be a slave because you were a prisoner of war. Sometimes as a community or a, a region was captured, they would enslave those people to varying degrees. Uh, you could be sold by your parents into slavery because may, maybe they're in poverty or, and they need the money and they can't afford to keep you as a child. So they would sell you into another household um, Slavery, slavery was often used uh, as punishment for crimes. So depending on the crime that you committed, you could, as part of your penalty, you could be indentured to a family or maybe the person that you created the crime against 
Or remember, there's no bankruptcy law either. So if you owe someone money, you, your punishment may be to serve them for X amount of years to pay off that debt. And then lastly, you could actually even sell yourself into slavery. If you had no options, remember there's no social uh, assistance or anything like that, you could just say, I, I would become your slave, willingly live in your household and work for you. Now, um, living as a slave in that first century could be a very harsh life. Or it could be really normal. It just depended on your situation. Because, and this is another point in your notes, some slaves had great authority. Now, I'm in no way romanticizing slavery by saying that, but your station in life as a slave was related to who your master was and in the role or what your job was for that master. So it could be anything from a menial task or it could be the equivalent of a PhD. Um, doctors, managers, sea captains, the highly educated sometimes were slaves. And so you could have great authority. Think about in your Old Testament the story of Joseph um, where he is falsely accused of um, a sexual assault of Potiphar's wife. And he, during that period, he's actually a slave of Potiphar, but he runs his whole business. He runs his whole estate. So Joseph at that time is a slave, but he had great power. And most slaves were paid a wage, often the same wage as a free person. And some would even choose to remain as a slave. It, you know, sometimes you, you, if you've heard other Bible teaching talk about a bond slave, like someone who willingly says, I want to stay here and be a part of this household as a slave. Um, slaves could gain their freedom. Uh, the average period that someone would be a slave would be 10 to 15 years until you paid off your debt, if you served faithfully. Um, in the year of, uh, in, in Jewish society, there was something called the year of uh, Jubilee. And that was every seven years, and um, anyone that had been enslaved during that period was supposed to be set free. Now, there's a lot of indication that that didn't happen, but that was the law. That was what they were supposed to do. So that said, all that about slavery, masters still had tremendous control over their slaves. Uh, in a patriarchal society, the, the male figure in the home basically was in charge of everything, not just the slaves, but wives and children and workers. Um, so even though... Um, someone might have great authority in their role as a slave, in the end, they have no autonomy whatsoever. So to become a slave, whatever manner in which you became a slave, um, you, you relinquished all your rights. You gave up your business. You gave up all of your assets. You lost your family. 
if you had a public position that was relinquished, you just had no autonomy left other than what was given to you. And there's very little like restraint on masters. There's no law that really protects someone who's in slavery for whatever reason. So like your owner could live up to the deal or not, and there would be no consequences. Now, some people, this is like a footnote. Um, some people will say, well, why don't we see slavery condemned in the Bible? Well, that's not exactly true, and this is just like a little like footnote aside to what we're talking about before we move on. I want you, first of all, I'm going to put a passage up from uh, what Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.8. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for practicing homosexuality, and then note this, for slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound, to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. So all that to say that right here, under the framework of the doctrine of the gospel, Paul condemns the trading of human beings. In his first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 7, verse 21, he says that you should gain your freedom if possible. And then as Christian thought begins to permeate society at this time, because of the teachings of Jesus and the gospel, we find there's a little letter in your New Testament just tucked away. It's called Philemon. And we've actually like taught that book when we did the Half the Church series. You should go back in our archives and check it out. It's the last message of Half the Church. And Paul here instructs a man named Philemon to take his, slave, his runaway slave back, a man named Onesimus, not putting him back in his position as a slave. And it's likely that he stole from him. Philemon as well. He says, receive him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. And then he gives a list of reasons why that's the right thing to do. So it may be true that, um, that some biblical statements are not strong enough for us today. Again, the Bible is like an ancient document. But the Bible does not condone slavery. It is true that in some cases, people have used the Bible. And in fact, this passage we'll look at today to condone slavery. But it's a complete misrepresentation of the Scripture. So we have to take the Bible as a whole and not just cherry-pick our little verses. And I know that no one sitting here wants to do that in regard to slavery. So with all this in mind, we are going to move on here. Who is Peter talking about? Slaves, in verse 18, is not the Greek word for the way that we understand slavery. It is actually, uh, it refers to household servants. And it's a general term that, that includes free people as well. These are people that work in the household. So what is going on? And how do we, how do we take this passage forward 
That's the rub, right? The rub is right what we're going to look at right now. What was he saying to do to someone who was working in this household, either free or indentured? The word that Peter uses, submit, this is number two, literally means to place under. Submit means to place under. Submit yourselves to your masters. Last week, submit to human authority. It literally means to organize underneath someone or something could be used militarily like these armies these divisions they are under this commander it could also be used voluntarily as an attitude of cooperation in other words i choose to place myself under um, this person or this organization or this institution as a matter of employment or or i'm a part of that organization Or it could also mean that you're just assuming responsibility. You're taking on a burden. You're placing yourself underneath that responsibility or burden. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you are by law under, arranged under, but it also means that you're choosing to place yourself, to arrange yourself under this. So just think about that for a minute. Like, there are some situations that you're a part of right now, organization, a person, that you are placed under, right? Just think of it. Can can you think about those? Like, just turn to someone, even if they're just next to you, and, like, give one example of where you see that you are arranged under somebody else. Do that now. You're a little hesitant. You're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to tell her that. <laughs> so here's the, here's the point. The gospel here is revolutionary. Um, remember, Jesus taught non-resistance. He said, if, if a Roman soldier asks you to go one mile, go two. He said to turn the other cheek if we were struck. So everybody... In culture at this time, they are relearning what it means to live. They have all they have this construct of the way the world is organized, and Peter is totally challenging that as he brings forward the teachings of Jesus. I mean, masters are relearning that human beings have dignity. Human beings, this person that's in my household, they they are made in the image of God, and they are not something to be owned. They are someone that I have a responsibility for. And then someone who is under either a slave or employed, they are relearning about their own personal dignity and their rights. So can you see the potential conflict that this would bring in culture? It's like it's reorganizing the way people think about the other. But rather than try to conflate or kind of like pull their values into Christianity, Peter's drawing a line and he's saying you have to rethink the way this works because the good life is more about self-denial than self-assertiveness. 
Submission here isn't based on the boss's good character or treatment either. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those that are harsh. So if you just like the, the person or organization that you mentioned to your neighbor, sometimes they have good days, sometimes they have bad days, right? Sometimes you feel like you're being treated fairly, sometimes you don't feel like you are. Sometimes you feel your voice is being heard, sometimes you feel like they're infringing in on you. But he's saying, he's, he's making an acknowledgement that The boss has a bad day. So why would anyone even do this? In the first century, let alone today, right? Why, why would we do that? And that's, that brings us to the vision behind this. And this is, this is important, or it'll just be a rule, right? Like, we're just supposed to do this. Turn left, not right. In verse 18, he says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, look for a common theme here as I read this too. In reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit that you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God, for it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now, that was a lot. And my slide person underlined certain sections which I did not know you were going to do, Megan. Thank you for doing that, though. So it's going to make this part of your participation really easy. Do you see it? That's my question in my notes. Do you, was there a common thing that jumped off the page? Say it. Commendable. What else? What else do you see? God. Okay. So that was like you got that. That's like a gimme. You got, I gave you a really easy question commendable this is commendable because you're conscious of what God is doing in other words I want to please God as a Jesus follower and I'm conscious of God I'm conscious of how God is part of this scenario that I'm in so think of a point of conflict that you had recently with governing authority a boss an organization when it happened what you were, what were you most conscious of if it was, i mean you don't have to shout that part out loud um, for most of us it's like how we were taken advantage of or and it happens But were we, thinking, were we conscious of God in it? See, the vision, this is point number three, the vision behind all this is to reflect the grace of God. 
That's, that's the thing that is guiding this, not a rule, do this when this happens. It is how is God's grace going to be reflected here? I'll tell you why. Number one, culture says, what does culture tell us? Well, on one end, it tells us to conform, right? Just do what you're told. You'll be left out. You'll be ostracized if you don't do what culture says. On the other hand, it says, you're what matters most. You be you and uh, live out your own self-interest. So, like, we get this conflicting message from culture. Peter is saying that to live counterculturally, it is to live for God's commendation. And commendable here is the word grace. So to live counterculturally is to live in a way that we reflect the goodness, the good life, and the grace of God. So Peter is not advocating for slavery in any way here. In fact, what's super fascinating after, to me, hopefully it will be to you as I tell you about it, but Peter, um, as he unpacks the good life, he is, he is bringing up every source, every relationship where we experience conflict, where we're confronted with our own will and our own preferences and our own rights, and something bigger. But he pretty much nails every situation. He talks about governing authority. Um, he talks about masters or employment for many of us. Next, next week, we're going to talk about marriage. Uh, and then we talk about relationships in general. And in each instance, Peter is bringing out uh, the dissonance that we experience in trying to live out the way of Jesus and what culture is telling us. And when the Bible repeats something, it's for a reason. And there's the, sa the same word is going to repeat. And it's like Peter picked every tension point you or I could ever face and say, well, this is the way of Jesus. Now, if we take every scripture and try to bring it into every instance, does it mean that every time I'm in conflict that I submit? No. <laughs> so, like, with government. Is Peter saying, whatever the government tells you to do, you should do it because you just have to do it, because that's the emperor. Not hardly. What about your job or your, your vocation? Um, are you supposed to do everything your boss ever says? Uh, never go to your union rep or file a complaint with the labor board because that's your boss. Um, what about wives? Are you supposed to do everything your husband tells you to do no matter what? You guys, come on. <laughs> I, that wasn't even, you can't do that to me. Come on, people. I mean, you're under your husband. Are you supposed to obey a manipulative abuser? Or do you not have autonomy of your own? Or just people in general. Is Peter saying that we're supposed to be doormats and, you know, we just all do what people tell us to do? And you're a Christian. You should never make waves. 
uh, or draw boundaries in your life. No, none of that is what Peter is saying. And that's why I thought it's important for us to look at this higher principle because sometimes it is the right thing to do, to submit. Um, sometimes we should just be silent and patient and gentle, and other times we should take a stand. So what's the rule? Like, how do you know? Is there a set rule? I have no idea. I don't think that there is a thing to say. This is what you have to do every time in that situation. But I do think that there's a question to ask based on what we've learned. And the question is this. How will God's grace be made most evident? How will God's grace be made most evident? And because of that, the good life starts with servanthood. The good life is not focused on me. The good life is not about my personal pleasure or my rights or my comfort. The good life is found in living for a higher purpose than just me. Oh, that's what he means. Do you feel worse or do you feel better? Or do you feel offended? How many of you feel worse now that you know what Peter means? How many of you feel better? How many of you aren't going to answer? How many of you are offended and you won't be back next Sunday? <laughs> okay, the last thing, and this is what like, brings it all together, is the example, right? And I bet you could guess this one. What, what's the example? Man, you guys, you got it down. <laughs> Jesus. The example is Jesus. And remember, haven't we seen Peter do this over and over and over again? In almost every section that we've looked at, there's always a, a Christ-centeredness to this. Verse 21, to this you were called. You're called to this. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. And that example is just like, this is a pattern, this is a template. Verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus committed no sin. There's no deceit in his word. So he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't say anything wrong. But his accusers, on the other hand, they hurled insults. They physically attacked him, and they crucified him. And Jesus' response, our example, was that he suffered, and he didn't retaliate, and he entrusted himself to God. By the way, this next section is, is a, a kind of a rough quote from the prophet Isaiah, and it became uh, kind of lyrics. This is called the servant's song. You may have heard this passage quoted before. Verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He did that for you. He did that for me. He did that for the person next to you. 
He did that for the person who thinks entirely differently than you about these things. You know, if you're not a Christian and you're kind of wondering, like, like, what is Christian faith? You know, up until the time of Christ, religion was a personal achievement. It was a way to earn acceptance of God. And what we see here is Jesus just flipped that. And that is the calling that God has given us as Christians. It's complicated. And it's not just a checkbox. The Bible makes us really think, doesn't it? And if you're a Christian, there's nothing in the world that will tell you to do this. There's no cultural value in this. Instead, culture will tell you to assert yourself, to press your preference, to uh, claim your rights, to impose your values. But that is not what Peter is saying we should do. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and while they do... um, I think that this text, this whole section has such significance for the day and time that we're living in because this is not a list. This is not a rule book to say, you're a Christian, do this every time. This is fundamental Christian theology. And the question is, is Jesus truly our example? You know, there are times when a Christian himself or herself should assert themselves and take a stand. Nobody can tell, I can't tell you when and how to do this. But I also know that there is another way that Peter is laying out for us. And it is the way of Jesus. And suffering for injustice sake, whether real or perceived, um, is not for the feeble-hearted or the weak need. This is a hard way to live. But remember, Jesus said that his followers must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow him. And in order to live this way, we'll have to die to ourselves daily, like Jesus said, and sort out what God is calling us to do. Mostly, it will look like self-denial, not self-assertion. But it will reveal the grace and love of God the people around us. And it's, it's a very hard concept. I get it. It's like, I, how can we do this? It's like, this, I'm not signing up for this, some of you are saying right now. I get it. But this, this is what we must consider. Like where we draw our lines and what, are, what is most important to us in this day and time. And it seems that it's going to involve submission. Placing ourselves under. Now next week, we're going to talk about marriage 
And I know there's no submitting of ourselves there, right? <laughs> That's next week. In the meantime, let's stand and uh, worship together. Thank you. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.